You are listening to the Magnetic Marketing Marketing Secret Gold Members Only Podcast. Sort of the first thing you and I agreed that we would talk about is some underlying fundamental insight into the psychology of the buyer, the person we are actually trying to get to read our copy, respond to our copy, buy things from us, etc. So what's your overarching position on who this person is and sort of where they start? Okay, first, um, is anybody mad at me from last night? What do you care? Just, just Deutsch. Yeah, just uh... So has, has anybody got... Uh, 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 has anybody spent time studying psychology, um, got a degree in it, or just dabbled in it, pop psychology? Anybody hung out with uh, uh, old school um, streetwise salesmen? That would be the main thing. Really? So, okay. Well, um, I accidentally got a... Well, let me give you a better one. Sure. No, I'll help you. So how many people in here have actually sold hardcore, nose-to-nose, toes-to-toes, on the, on the living room floor, in a showroom, etc. cetera. Okay, right? then, now, then. Keep, keep your hands up if you like actually cashed a commission check. I mean, you actually like made some money doing it. Okay, see, they're, they're, not, they're not hopeless. Okay, good. There you go. Yeah, uh, most, uh, I accidentally got a, uh, a degree in psychology, a four-year degree from the University of California, it, it, and I graduated into the teeth of the 74 recession and Absolutely nothing I learned there was of any value. There, there were 20,000 uh, BAs in psychology given out of the United States that year for one job that was available. So I think I wound up as a childcare worker in Sacramento for a couple of years. Anyway, um, did you know, by the way, that was on the test you take in high school? I was supposed to be a social worker. Oh, really? Yeah. That was. I'm well, serious. In a way. No, I'm serious. That's what that. You know that aptitude test thing you take. I was supposed to be a social... Hey, I'd have been efficient. <laughs> I could handle a big caseload. Get a job. Next. I mean, you know. Stop whining. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so I took an interest in psychology into, uh, into my life as a freelance copywriter and hung out with the streetwise uh, salesman uh, and really, really paid attention to old school psychology. So... When I started writing direct response advertising, it was a very short move for me to go from looking at the uh, audiences out there in, in, a, in a target market and then looking kind of beneath the surface and looking at what I believed they needed to happen to be able to move them off of their in, inaction. And when I described it later, in, uh, uh, when, when I started writing about this, I described people in the average market as a synambulistic blob welded to the couch so firmly it wouldn't leave to save its ass if the house was burning down. And your job as an ad writer is to get them to take out their wallet and actually take some action. So this is what I was talking about last night with how easy it can be to get somebody up on the fence, to get somebody to agree with you that, yeah, you got a good product and maybe someday down the road I'll buy it. But you've got to get them to act. And that's where the pro is separated from, from the rookie. You know, that, that's why, and I, I'm reasonably certain you agree, that's why I push people to, to study the old direct response so much. 
I say there's old and the gold, because they had a much tougher job at what he just described, really, than we do now. Because they actually did have to get him up off the couch. I mean, somebody had to go get a checkbook out of the kitchen drawer, write out a check, fill out a coupon, put it in an envelope, not talk themselves out of it, get a postage stamp, and drop it in a mailbox in order to respond. And then for a, finally, they were able to respond by phone uh, when 800 numbers and the ability to take a credit card over the phone. But that's actually... That's more recent than it is ancient. Uh, Sugarman uh, was the first guy to put an 800 number in a direct response ad and be able to take orders by credit card over the phone. So that's what, 30, 30, 30? Early 70s, yeah. Yeah, early 70s. So I know for some of you that's ancient history, but not for John and I. Uh, and not for many. I mean, it's not like it was at the turn of the century, for God's sakes. So those people doing direct response then had a much higher hurdle to move this person John just described. And I generally share the same disdainful idea of where they are. Well, there's a, there, there's a subtle balance there. It's not, it, you don't get the idea that I don't like my customer. I like him a lot. In fact, one of the things that I try to teach people that come to me for advice just on life and stuff, is that salesmen lead better lives. The people who know how to sell and understand what Dan and I are talking about, the direct review, the, the ability to get somebody to move and actually buy something, you lead a better life because you can't do that if you don't live firmly in reality. And the vast majority of people live kind of on the surface of life, you know, kind of bobbing around like flotsam and jetsam on the, on, on the surface of the ocean, taken hither and, and, and to, you know, uh, by the waves. And entrepreneurs and who are good salesmen actually start to control your life. You have goals, you, you, you go forward, you are the engine of your success, you, you move yourself forward. That is not shared by the vast majority of, of people out there. They are living in very shallow lives. Salesmen lead better lives all the way around. You, you don't look at the world the way you wish it was or the way you think it ought to be. You look at the way the world the way it is. And people get shocked when they first start thinking about this because they think, well, does that mean I have to despise my, my customer base? No. You actually start to love people more when, you, when all of the, the nonsense falls away, all, all of the, beast, the, the BS is taken away, and you're actually dealing with people for who they are and how they will actually act as opposed to the way you think they should or ought to act. And it and, changes the whole dynamic. And where they start. So I think that one of the mistakes... So salespeople, you, you learn not to start at a different place than the prospect is because you get feedback, right? You sit across the kitchen table, you sit across the desk in the office, and if they're over here and you start here, you pretty quickly get a feel of that and you sort of back up and retrench. We don't get that feedback when we sell through media. And a, a, a very common mistake is making assumptions about where they are and starting further along than they are in the process towards making a decision about whatever it is that you are putting in front of them. So like what you just said, that we have our own engines, yeah. and our engines like start pretty quick. They're, they either don't have their own engine, or it's still got a hand crank. And, and so we got to start way back with them there, not like 
ready to hear the good news about the thing we have to offer them. And Dan, do you, do you remember the first time you met somebody who was a customer who you had not met before, and they were a little astonished that you didn't know them because they felt they knew you so well? Yes. They actually felt they had, and that's Which is what's happened. supposed to happen, right? That's but, but that moment <coughs> that happens is you realize now you've arrived as a marketer because the communication that you just affected with them might have been a year ago, and they bought, and then you've got more things going back and forth. They're reading your newsletters. They're reading your stuff. They feel that connection on a visceral level. And, and you, how, how many people feel you know Dan after, after, after reading him these years before you met him? So that's a, that's a major step in moving from being a social entrepreneur to, be, you know, to having the uh, un, unlimited potential. And I'd, I'd like to add one other side to that psychology thing that I had. For myself, I operated from a gun-to-the-head uh, uh, position, and uh, I found out later that Halbert did the same thing and Jay Abraham did the same thing. I, know, I don't know if you did, but I had no backup. I had no uh, freelance. Uh, I'd never met a freelancer when I became one. I, I was making up the gig as I was going along, and uh, I was one of the few freelancers down in Los Angeles in the 80s because it just wasn't an occupation that was, uh, that was well thought of or even that a lot of people knew about. So I had to make up things as I was going. One of the things I did was I imagined a gun was to my head when I was writing an ad that would go off if the ad didn't work. And how would I react to that? So would I choose that headline? Would I take that tact in my sales pitch? Would I tell a joke or would I be straightforward? And over and over again, that idea of my life is on the line if this ad doesn't work kept me really focused on classic salesmanship. So I didn't experiment because when it came down to it, writing for a client I already had the money, or I was going to get paid whether the ad works or not, so in a lot of writers, you can get lazy. Rather than that, I kept thinking, what's the, what's the one thing I would do if my life really, really depended on that? So the gun-to-the-head philosophy of working erases the, a lot of the BS that can leak into your writing when you're, uh, when, when you're thinking, well, why not try this? Well, because it won't work. You know? so one, of the, one of the evils of the Internet is that it has caused marketers to dramatically increase the quantity of their output to their customers and made them, therefore, quick, sloppy, and casual about a lot of it. Whereas, really, most people would be better off putting 75% less out and really working on the 25% to get it right. I mean, John's absolutely right. I mean, those of us... And, of course, once, as a freelancer, once you're in the game for royalties, not just fees, then from a monetary standpoint, you actually care whether or not this stuff works, not just from an ethical standpoint or a professional reputation standpoint. But I'm often more concerned that it works than the client is, even. And, yeah, you work on it like this is life or death, and this baby's got to produce or else. And I think a lot of marketers do not do that. They are like, okay, we're going to get two emails out a day this week, and we're going to do it every day for five days. Let's slap these babies together, and let's push the button. And, 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 I, and I think it's a mistake. And one of the things that I, I know you've come up with or come up against with clients, which I do, is that you will write the ad that you believe needs to be run to do it. And everything that you know says this ad needs to be run. What's the first thing the client says? 
my, my daughter, the English lit major, read it and thinks you ought to change the headline. I'll use this word and do this. And if you don't have control as a freelancer, one of the first things I teach freelancers is to become the adult in the room. You, you control the situation. You are not a vendor. You are in control. You do that by charging massive amounts of money. And firing people. And, and uh, one of the things I used to do in the agency is I'd walk in and I said, I won't work with you guys until you fire the designer. Because the designer had way too much seen what the ad looked like. He wanted gray floating blocks of copy under his, you know, his, his designs. And, uh, but that was back in the 80s before direct response had reestablished itself. As right. Working, um, see, John, uh, see the, the chief point here is that there are reliable things to do. And they are based on behavioral. So I say direct response is roughly half behavioral psych and half math. That's really what it is. And, and so there's reliable psychological principles. There's reliable sales principles. And yes, somebody periodically innovates, but it's really not necessary to be the innovator in order to make a lot of money in this field. It, 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 there's a fairly predictable, reliable path of elements that make things work. And they really haven't changed. Media's changed, technology's changed, you know, but. A presentation that works is a presentation that works is a presentation that works. And, you know, you and I as writers, what's, what were, were we just talking about in the hallway before we came in? You know, if we want to be creative, we'll go write a, a freaking novel. We'll write an novel. You know, and be creative there. Although it turns out, truth be told, so that's not that creative a process either. So, um, I mean, when I got in advertising, I thought it was a creative exercise, you know, and it is not that at all. It is a methodical exercise. It turns out fiction is harder, (laughs) yes, harder, and also methodical. There are formulas. There are architectures. There are reliable things. Um, I I, want to shift gears because I'm going to watch the clock. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about the whole circle the desk thing. Sure. What goes on really before we get a word on paper? Um, I, I did two things when I started writing for myself. And uh, really being, being a freelancer is an entrepreneurial gig. I was, you know, it, it, it was my own business. And I had to figure out how to make sure I was doing it and doing it right. So I made a couple of decisions. One was business before pleasure, which for a slacker, changed my life. That's all I did is I wasn't going to, I could still have a drink with the boys and party and do, and do whatever, but I had to finish all the business first. So that was huge. But then what I did is I started thinking, wait a minute, I need to like really nail down this working environment for me. I needed every trick in the book on my side. So I actually wore writing clothes. How many people have writing clothes or a hat or something that they do? Okay, you know, you, you've heard people talk about put on your writer hat or something or put on your salesman hat. I literally did that, and it helped. Now, one of the reasons it's hel- it helped, excuse me, one of the reasons that helped is because my writing clothes are dirty sweats and an old T-shirt, so I actually couldn't go to the door and answer it or walk outside to the thing. I was stuck in there unless I was going to change clothes. And I actually had different hats on that I would do. I'd put a different hat on when I would call a client. I'd put a different hat on when I was ready to sit down and actually uh, face the... I would start out with a typewriter. That's how old I freaking am. But, uh, you know, whether I was standing at a monitor or a blank, blank sheet of paper. And what I developed, what, what, what Dan was mentioning there, is this 
habit of getting into the mood to write. How many people, I, I told you that writer's block doesn't exist last night, but how many people have trouble gearing up to sit down and actually write the stuff you need to write? Yeah, it's because your subconscious isn't ready. Right. That's exactly... And, and, and that's why what I started doing is, uh, I like dogs. I noticed that dogs circle things. You know, they circle around before they lay down. And I started circling the desk. And I'd actually work myself into a froth. Now, I didn't approach the desk until I was ready to write. And that's why there, I never encountered writer's block. So what, what Dan was talking about last night, I, I had all my ducks in a row. I knew what I was going to do. So when I sat down, I wasn't thinking... Well, where do I start? I knew where to start. I knew who I was going after. I knew what the, what, the, uh, what the pain points were. I knew what the feature benefits were. And by the way, when I write, I usually write the bullets first and then move to a headline and then, then start writing. So I construct the ad in a uh, kind of like uh, building a house or remodeling a house. So, but I would circle the desk and work myself into a fraud. And one of the things that I thought when I was sitting down, I would think, God damn it, there are people walking around out there today that have money in their wallet that belongs to me. And the universe will not be right until I rectify that situation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you very much. Dogs, um, dogs also pee to mark their territory. I hope you were not doing that Dan, in your office. Dan, you promised you wouldn't bring that part of it. Um, um, no, that, that work, I wear that, astronaut underwear when I write. That work area probably got smelly after a <laughs> length of time. If, if, so I, I hear from people all the time, and your hands went up a lot, that, you know, for you, writing is hard, and, oh, how can I take a newsletter once a, once a month or sales letter? If writing and writing at a decent speed is difficult for you, it is because your preparation is poor. Yep. It's just that simple. And, and, and one or both kinds of preparation. So one is the pragmatic preparation of knowing who you, having a profile of who you're writing to, having some sort of template in place, having some good swipe files until you get so old and accomplished at it like he and I are where I imagine you like me now, 90% of the time you're working out of the swipe files in your head, not the swipe files in the back room, although they are yeah. still there. But so there's that kind of preparation, you know. If, am I practically ready to write? And then there's is your subconscious in gear? Does it know that that's what's supposed to be happening right now? And almost every copywriter has some sort of <coughs> ritualistic behavior, not necessarily the one he described but some sort of ritualistic behavior. They have an environment. <clears throat> I mean, real copywriters aren't writing at Starbucks. Right? The world thinks that's their office somehow, and Schultz has convinced everybody that that's their office, or Panera Bread, for God's sakes. Re re real copywriters have an environment that they have organized, a place, and not only is it because their stuff is there, and they're maybe protected from disruptions, it's because their subconscious knows when they enter that place, oh, okay, I gotta flip open the drawers, I gotta turn on the switches, this is now all about writing. And so when it's difficult for you, it's really a matter of preparation more than it is you can't write, writing is hard, you don't have a good idea, 
And let me, let, let, let me help some of you out who do have this trouble. Just go ahead and develop your own routines. You can do whatever you want. There are two kinds of writers, those who work in complete silence. I work in complete silence. And those who play music in the background. Uh, Stephen King wrote with ACDC blaring. I have a TV on. Okay, so... I have so, a television on. There's, there's a number I'm of writers. Over here, and I don't see it. But exactly. So it, it, it's like white noise, so it does that. So don't mm. worry about that. Choose that, either, either one or the other. But get your routine down so that you do that. Take the phone off the hook and make a big deal about taking the phone off the hook. And a lot Nobody of writers, has hooks. Pardon me? We're both phone off hook. See, phone off hook, typewriter. Thanks for that. Yeah. Actually, I had I had a wooden one of those wooden chairs. I'm sensitive to this because I have this titanium member who has no frame of reference for any of this stuff. So, like 20 times during a mastermind meeting, I have to explain to her what the object is I'm talking about, because, you know. The color adjustment knob on the Exactly, yeah, yeah exactly. But <laughs> get your, so get your. Get, God get damn, your I hadn't thought about that in a long time. A color adjustment, wow. <coughs> Shut up. Wow. I found a picture of myself in the 50s, and the first TV you had was round, you know, and it, it, that was a move up from the one that reflected off the mirror when you opened Anyway, uh, what was I talking about? Oh, and, and for, for, for your routine, whatever you need to do, but get the routine down. It can be a two-minute routine or a five-minute routine, whatever you do, but set it down. But make it so that nobody's going to disturb you, and then set a clock. This, this was a big break for big. a lot of people. This is very big. Yeah. Work, <coughs> I, start with 50 minutes out of, out of an hour. Work for two hours with 10-minute breaks. So work for 50 minutes, and then take a 10-minute break, and literally leave. Get out of that, get, and when you come back, do your routine again to get back into it. Now, see, we're stylistically different on that. So, like, I take no breaks. Well, but, but I find out. <coughs> right. You but I write to a deadline just like you do. I mean, if you don't have a stop point, if you don't have a stop point that you're working toward, right, your subconscious just doesn't know when it needs to be done. It's astonishing what an alarm clock, and, and I would get an old school alarm clock, you know, or you, you can use your iPhone and it goes off and it does that little drum beat or whatever. See, but, now you're making adjustments. See, I made you hypersensitive about this. Very yeah. <laughs> Actually, I have a dog that wakes up and has to go pee every hour. So there you go. Perfect. Sleeping at my feet. But, but find out, and it could be your 45 minutes and 15 minutes, could be your half an hour and half an hour, could be, mine's more like two hours and then half an hour and then back for two hours, and then I'm done. Four, four hours of writing is more, if, if, if you're steady, productive, f in four hours of writing, you get more done than the average marketer gets done in a month. But you want to dictate end times, <clears throat> and I dictate the amount of work that's oh. going to be done by that end time. So if it's 16 pages, and it's been assigned 50 minutes, my entire system now knows... And, that and it's got 50 minutes to do 16 pages. And one of, one of the big things I remember uh, that you cemented down, I was, I was kind of already in that camp, but I tend to be a perfectionist sometimes. I know it's hard to believe, but sometimes I do. And Dan used to preach, good enough is good enough. I don't know if, if you already talked about mm -hmm. that yesterday or not. But that is really important. Know when to stop, and it's short, it's not perfect. Perfect ads seldom work anyway. 
And often what you're doing is you're messing with what's going to be a 1% difference. That's know, right. It's incremental. Less. So when it's good enough, that's when you pump. That's why Dan does two edits and, he, and he's done. I, I will do more, but I'm working sometimes for clients who demand that perfection. They don't want the occasional typo in there. But most ads, we used to purposely put typos in our printed ads and our, in, in our direct mail. So if it was perfect, it still didn't look perfect. But we, you know, you can get that just by doing two less edits usually. Okay, that's, that's a tangent. Sorry. So last night, I know you lived on USP. <clears throat> However, maybe to revisit or extend or give you another bite at that apple. Um, I think one-legged golfer, of course, is an all-time classic. Um, I think- The process of getting there? Hmm? The getting there? Yeah, I think you're one of the best at getting to the big idea, the, the what hook. Nicholas called the hidden benefit, the, the hook, the thing that really makes a pitch stand apart from all other pitches in its category. And okay, how, how many people have, have seen my one-legged golfer ad? That, that was a big breakthrough for me because, because of two things. One was I had a client who I wasn't gonna work for. I was actually having my second or third midlife crisis and was playing in, in uh, biker bars in this band that I formed. I didn't wanna work at all. So they lured me to come back to work by, they promised they would take the leash off. And what that meant was that they were going to run anything I wrote. They would mail it, and they would put it in, into magazines, and they'd swallow hard, and they would not change a word. And that, that to a writer who has worked with clients who has always changed his stuff was like catnip. I mean, it was just, okay, so we did it. So, so I just threw myself into this knowing that there was no limit to what I could do. I mean, I could ruin these guys if I wanted to, but my goal was to make them very successful, which, which I was able to do. And so, so what I did is what uh, uh, Dan was talking about yesterday, again, the, the prep part. I started interviewing clients, and one of the first products they had was a golf guy who had this strange swing that if you adopted the swing, and they were selling videotapes, that's going back, not, not even DVDs, so on videotape, they just filmed this guy, you know, doing this swing, and I was supposed to sell this videotape, an instructional golf video. It was kind of new back then. This is probably 1991, I think, something. And so I thought, that's pretty boring. That's, there's not a lot going on there. There's nothing, nothing for me to get my, my teeth around. So I interviewed what we call the talent, the guy behind the thing. And I said, I was talking to him for about an hour on the phone. Wacky guy, but no stories came out. And finally I said, uh, how did you come up with this triple coil swing that you call? He says, ah, oh, that old story, nobody wants to hear that. I was golfing one day behind a foursome. One of the guys only had one leg, and as he hopped up to the first tee to swing, I thought for sure he was going to fall over, but he didn't. He had this perfect swing, and he knocked a 300-yard drive, and I had this epiphany at the point, and I, I just said, stop. And, and, and I said, you know, I, I, I pretty much got it. So you got, you, this is what inspired you. He says, yeah, but nobody wants to hear that stuff. <laughs> Here's what's really important about this, because we have this experience with clients all the time. They've got something spectacular, and it's old hat to them. They don't know it has any value, which means you have something like that, too. I have yet to find anybody that doesn't, that with enough probing, they're sitting on a story they ought to be telling. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to talk about story, by the way. They're sitting on a story they ought to be telling that they either don't like, 
they're embarrassed by, yet they should be using it. They feel it's trading on something, you know, they cancer recovery, they feel it's trading on something like that. They don't put any value on it, whatever. They've got it, which means you've got it. Dan, this, this goes back to when I used to deal with clients. If I gave them an ad and they said, this is great, can't wait to run it, I knew, bomb. Yep. This thing was not going to work. I want, I want a client so nervous that, that he, the only reason he runs the ad is because he's paying me so much money. It would be this, the sunk cost theory is eating away at him because they don't want to do it. And one of the ways you get to that is what, what Dan, Dan was just alluding to. I would interview the secretaries, the feet and That's right. salesmen, everybody else but the guy I was dealing with, because I would get a, an edited, dreamlike story from the guy who owned the company. I want to hear the gossip, the rumors. I want to hear what, what the guys who have to actually handle the, the refunds coming in. I want to talk to the people who are doing customer, customer support. And often the, the best stuff you'll get is just right outside his office. They'll go, oh yeah, he told you that? That's bullshit. And, so, so you'll and like the story will bubble up. So you'll like this, and I don't think I've told, told, told you. So oh, okay. a few years ago, I did a bunch of work for Miracle Ear, the hearing aid company. Okay. They spent $2 million with, with me, by the way, and used almost nothing that I gave them. Um, For sure sign you did it right. Oh, yeah, it was perfect. Um, uh, the franchisees that did use it kicked butt, but corporate you know, set themselves on fire. But that's neither here nor there. So, so Miracle sells hearing aids. They got about 1,200 stores across the country. The interesting thing about the company is the original founder, the guy that started it, has sold it, bought it back for less than he sold it for, sold it, bought it back, you know, to big dumb companies four times in his lifetime, okay? The only reason he's not doing it a fifth time is he's 92 years old, right? So, so he sells it to a big dumb company, they screw it all up, he buys it back, he fixes it, he turns it back into a direct sales company and builds it back up, sells it to some big dumb company. So when I was working for him, they had just come out of being owned by Bosch and Loam, who thought hearing aids were eyeglasses, which they aren't. And, um, it, it's more like erectile dysfunction pills than it is eyeglasses for the male buyer. I mean, it's a big emotional deal. It's, you know, we're all... Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, so here's the deal. So I'm, I'm interviewing franchise owners on the phone because I don't trust anything the corporate client is telling me, right? Just like I wouldn't trust anything you're telling me in part because you got a belief system that builds up about your business and your customers and so forth that you become emotionally committed to that, that often is not reality, in part because you got some asset like this that you don't know you've got, that you don't value. So as John said, you got to go poke around other places. And if you're doing it for yourself, you got to be willing to like kind of wipe the slate clean as best you can of all your biases and start doing the same poking around as if you had brought yourself in as an outsider. Hard, but not impossible. So I'm interviewing these franchise owners. And I don't know, I'm on the phone for like an hour with like eight, ten of them. And the one I'm on the phone with used to be president of the company. And now he's, at one time, and now he's retired and he's got one little unit in Bumlunk, Alabama, and he plays a lot of golf, you know, so... But so he starts telling me about the founder, which nobody has told me about the founder. But he was president when the founder was running, one of the times the founder was running the company. He goes, yeah. So he starts telling me about the founder. 
So now understand a hearing aid, especially to a male, you're selling to a 60 to 80 year old guy. It's a big emotional deal. These are people who don't go to doctors unless they're drugged there. They still are big self-reliance guys. This is a big- Examine if people would just speak up. This is a big admission, yeah. But it's also, it's a big admission of weakness and frailty and age that nobody wants to make, right? So the founder of this company, his name is uh, Ken Dahlberg. So Ken is a, this is a, he's a real-life Audie Murphy or a real-life John Wayne if you want a more contemporary reference. So he's a World War II fighter pilot, this guy, shot down twice, once escaped from France on a bicycle under barbed wire, smuggled out by people who rescued him from the field. He's got a purple heart. He shot down, um, he's got some award for shooting down more planes than anybody else on the planet. I mean... It crawls out from under the barbed wire, gets home, and the first thing he does is sign up for the next mission. I mean, this guy's a real-life World War II hero, right? He's still getting a royalty on the product because every time he sells the company, he keeps a royalty. So he's still getting money. So he'll do stuff. They, first of all, they think he's an idiot, which he isn't. Second, they think nobody wants to hear that story. I'm hearing this. I'm going, that's the voice. That's the story, right? Because now we can make this about doing something courageous, because he wears them, right? That this is really a courageous thing to do, not a weak thing to do. We can put it in his voice. They're not using him at all. They don't even have to go rent a celebrity. They got one. And they're not even using the guy. And if I hadn't made the phone calls, and I hadn't talked to the franchise owners, I probably never would have found it. Because you had to go back in company literature almost 50 years to find it being used because gradually everybody around him convinced him to stop telling the story and he didn't want to tell the story anymore and so forth. And we find this again and again and again. And I promise you, you've got assets like this that you aren't leveraging. It's a good exercise amongst each other, by the way, in mastermind groups. It's a good thing. It's a good place to do it is to probe each other. I don't mean physically, necessarily. But. <laughs> one, one small cav- caveat to that. Uh, the, the one-legged golfer ad that I wrote um, has been ripped off, I think, more than almost any other ad. And it's still running, by the way. I still collect royalties on that every, every month. That ad is now going on over 20 years old. It worked fine when the web came along, and it's been in mail, and it still appears in, in uh, 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 tight markets that we're going to... But people rip it off, and you can't, like, use that for the, an accountant. You can't say, you know, the, the amazing secrets of a one-legged accountant that will help you, you know, beat the IRS at their own game. There has to be relevance. So what Dan was talking about with this guy, you know, he found the hook, the hook between this guy's experience to the problem that people were having with admitting that they needed to wear the, the hearing aids. You know, if you get that guy. And they, they never ran it. I can't, I can't believe it. But they, I did, a lot of the work I did for them, some... It's sitting moldering in a file. Somewhere. Some of the smaller franchise owners used it. Corporate pretty much went in and backed out, you know. Um, um, but anyway, so clients are, you know, a topic. Clients, all clients suck. All clients suck. I, I had that written above my desk for 20 years. All some, some are worse than others. but. And when I started working for myself, I sucked. I was the worst client I ever had in my life, so... 
for entrepreneurs. Just realize that. I, suddenly, suddenly, all the stuff that I forced my clients to do for 30 years, I wasn't willing to do when I was doing my own stuff. I, you know, I, I can't use that headline. What about my reputation? Well, that's the first. That's, so I call it the entrepreneurial transition. That's when you realize you have a really bad manager, you have a really bad employee, you are both of them, and nobody can get fired. Yeah. This is this is awful, you know. You're related to both of them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's worth always having at least one other employee, so you have somebody periodically you can fire, um, or at least fantasize about fire, you know. Um, so, biggest in your entire career, biggest single discovery, thing that surprised you, breakthrough. Well, I'd, I'd have to say that was, um, for me, when, when, I, when I started out, and I told you guys last night how I went to the Torrance Municipal Library and read everything in the Dewey Decimal System, 600 to 820, whatever it was, and the things that I pulled out of there that I liked were old books, and a lot of them were out of print. And that turned, and I, one of the books that really, really hit me hard was Claude Hopkins' uh, Scientific Advertising and My Life in Advertising. Almost always published as, as a single book, but it's two different books he wrote. In 1921, David? No? 1921? Yeah. Yeah. So, and even then when I found it, I thought, well, you know, it, it, to me, this was an insight into the kind of salesmanship that I wasn't finding because the other books I was pulling off of the shelf were much more recent, more like textbooks, and they talked about stuff that didn't, you know, sounded good, but it was theory and it wasn't how to do it. And here's this guy from, you know, half a century ago that was telling me all this. And what happened was me liking that became my entry into meeting when I met uh, Jay Abraham and Gary Halbert and Joe Sugarman. It was their favorite books, too. And we had this little cabal of people who the things that we were using were books that were out of print. When I was working with Gary, we paid $1,000 for a third-generation mimeograph of the Robert Collier letter book. I don't know if that's one of the ones you recommend. Yeah, and now you can get it at Amazon, by the way. Well, you know, what happened was when we started doing the seminars, guys like Galetti and stuff, you know, they, got, they found, you know, yep. got these for nothing they, they have, and are now publishing them, so they're all back in print. But this stuff was out of print. I mean, Howard made that trek to the uh, uh, National uh, Li uh, Library of Congress and, mm -hmm. and spent years in there reading, um, not years, spent uh, weeks, in, weeks in there reading out of print books that you couldn't otherwise find. And he just find these things by Kennedy. Who was that guy, Kennedy? In the, uh, John E. Yeah. Uh, the, the original guys, and what, what was, I mean, just the discovery that that was my connection to these guys, and of course the next intellectual thing is that that really means there's a connection between us and cavemen who are selling stuff to each other. Um, I forget who it was that it, uh, found in an obscure uh, text that there were used chariot salesmen in, in, uh, in Rome. Uh, well, so seriously... There's, there was a national, people think USA Today was the first national newspaper. There was a national newspaper during the Civil War called Harper's Weekly, not to be confused with Harper's Magazine, which came later. And it was a national newspaper, like USA Today is today. And so I have replica issues, you can buy replica issues now, of, of this newspaper. And the classified section is full of lead generation ads for get rich in real estate, uh, how to get a job in sales, right? 
and yeah, and stuff that you could buy and resell, be a direct salesperson and make money, and then direct response ads for baldness cures. And, you know, and a lot of the products, by the way, so like there's an ad in a Civil War era Harper's newspaper for the electric vibrating hairbrush, which stimulates your follicles and somehow regrows hair. There is a current ad in the Sharper Image catalog for the same stupid product that doesn't do anything. And by the way, if you lay it side by side with the Harper's ad from the Civil War, there's enormous similarity. However, the Civil War ad is better. Um, So, you know, these fundamentals, and that's the thing that should be really encouraging to everybody, especially anybody that's sort of new to info marketing, to direct marketing, is they are locked in place fundamentals that you can absolutely rely on that really nothing has changed. And people all the time, so I'm gonna jump to that. So people always think the next new media changes the rules, right? And so we've lived long enough, we've been through this with media that has come and gone. Um, but you most. Remember 900 numbers? 900 numbers. See, <laughs> most people, that, that was the big, that was like everybody talking about Facebook now. Everybody was talking about 900 numbers. There were seminars, there were training programs, there were speakers running around and teaching. We told them over and over again it's going to be sex lines, guys. Yep. But they all wanted to have latest sports scores, weather. Which pretty much, by the way, still is what e-commerce is, too. It's, I mean, it's 80% sex and 20% the rest of us. But, um, so, so here's my question. <laughs> Specific to all the online media, okay, how do you feel your skills, your methodology, your approach is antiquated by any of that or has to be altered by any of that? What has it changed any of the rules you live by? Yes, the physical rules. The I I uh, cut my teeth as a uh, A-list copywriter by writing for the uh, the largest mailers in the United States, like Rodale and things like that. So I got to the point where I would start writing, and when I was done, I would either have an eight-page or a twelve-page or a sixteen-page direct mail letter. And it was because I just trained myself so long. And the reason you go eight or 12 or 16 is because that's how they were printed. It's called a four-page signatures would actually go through the physical print. Couldn't be a 15-pager because that would be a blank page on the back. Um, and if I went one page over a, uh, I think it was four pages plus a brochure and some other things, it would pretty much be an ounce. And then you'd start getting, you'd pay for each little thing that, that would go above that. So the physical nature of that was, was very real. The same with uh, newspaper ads, of course. You know, you had a certain amount of space. You could only drop the point size so far before it became unreadable, and you kept packing stuff in there. The web removed that to a large degree, much to the chagrin of the futures for a lot of marketers who realized they... I mean, in uh, 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 David and I have talked about this. In 2004 or something, a number of the marketers that were actually selling a lot online, they were new newbies in markets, they was low-hanging fruit. They were writing 100-page sales letters because they just didn't know when to stop. There was no, there was no deadline, there was no, 
uh, reason to stop. They could write whatever they want. One, one URL could be as many pages as you could fit. So the, it, it, it erased that. But I find that when I write uh, for online things in, in a print ad, it still comes down to what is essentially an eight or 12 page letter because I can cover everything I need to know. So the discipline is gone. That would be the main thing. And v video sales letters actually have reintroduced discipline because you can't go on forever in a video. Although, end of America, 92 minutes, you can go a long way, but. A lot of, a lot of the ones that are working, the last I heard was 29 minutes on average for uh, direct response video, uh, sales videos. Not, not lead gen, but, but uh, sales videos. Uh, I think it was John Benson was talking about the 29 minute. So I, I may be wrong by a few minutes. That's a long time. That's a long time, but it is still a concise time, and they got there from testing. They they tested it out, so there are differences. Kind of like when uh, you know the the, the one uh, the, the the one thing that I learned from Dan was when infomercials came around. That was a new medium they came, and it was on TV. Now it wasn't new to advertise on TV, and infomercials actually went back to the birth of the, of the medium. The early shows in the 50s were all infomercials. Mm -hmm. The Johnny Carson was an infomercial. You know, the, the, the dancing cigarette boxes. I better not talk about this stuff. You guys have no idea what I'm talking about. But infomercials weren't new, but the form that came about because of cable TV did change things because there were concise periods of time to get in. And you were like one of the inventors of the thing. Uh, Close. The, 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 but you were there with the guys who invented the blue screen. Mm -hmm. And then they decided a blue screen has to appear every... 15 minutes, and then it was every 10 minutes. They started testing, and pretty soon it became very concise. The first infomercials I wrote, we, we, uh, uh, we had a client, Gary and I, they bought t scrap TV time at a uh, channel in Los Angeles. We went in and wrote the thing as we went, had a set there, and the guy would bring on, um, you, you know who this guy is? Cal Morris. Yeah. This guy would bring on a guy to sell something, and he'd just talk to him. And when it was when they were done, because they knew they had a 45-minute or an hour or a 29-minute slot to, to fill for free that night on BET, so they would stop. And the first one I saw, uh, Hal started talking to the guy. And the guy goes, "Wait, we're recording." And he goes, "Yeah, yeah, come on, go." They left that in. No editing. Went straight from when they're and then when it was over, he said, "Okay, that's done." And they slammed it up on BET that night for free because BET didn't realize that time was so valuable. It was 2 a.m. And they thought, nobody's going to pay or watch at 2 a.m. You can have it. And so that, that was a wild period of time. But then from that, no rules, it started, you know, people tested and, and the cable networks became, you know, realized that that time was very valuable. So, so you see these things go through this. The web has gone through that same process. Now it's being much more circumscribed in the way from testing, by the way, which is the essence of directory smart. Well, that's the best thing about it, is yeah. it's a great place to test. Or cheaper, but, yes. you know, I still run it. And it, it was something it's said. only indicative if it's not predictive, right, is what I always say. Because if you move something from one media to the next, right. it may have worked or not worked in one, but it could have life in another. I, I get so many clients though that are online that couldn't be and they brag about how big their list is. You know, it's like I got 70,000 people on my list. How many of those are buyers? I, I don't know. Seven. Which, which, you know, I, made, I, made, I became a cash millionaire with a list of 300 people first. And it, you know, it's, it, 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 the, get the numbers right. Get the math right, guys, that, that what's going on. Yes, what did you say it was a half? Half behavioral psych, half math. Half math. Most people don't like the math, by the way. 
they don't like that part of the part of the process. But you don't. You don't but the math is math everything. Quiz, but but you need to know what what numbers count and what don't. I, I I still get questions like what percentage response should I expect to get from my whatever? It's I don't know. You know. If you sell something for a million dollars, you only need one response out of a, whatever size your list is. It's one of the all-time dumbest questions. It's the most frequently asked question. Yeah. It doesn't matter, right? Only ROI matters. But most clients, including good, smart clients, I can usually stump them with five questions. I mean, it's just amazing how few people know the numbers of their business. You know, what does it cost you to get a customer from source A versus source B? What was the customer worth over 12 months from source A versus source B? People don't know this stuff. And, well, when, when you and they're that, making, you know, decisions in the dark. Yeah, when you had that slide of the test, you know, headline A with to offer B, yep. you do that. You know, how, how many different permutations did that come out to? It was like, it was like oh, well, I just stopped. But, I mean, right, but, you could very easily have a matrix with 200, 250 different... Right. But, but what's interesting is that you get somebody who's all math, and they will take a bad headline with a bad offer and do all this testing and, come, and keep coming up with zero. So sell one thing first, move through. And that's where the guys that, come, that know the behavioral psych understand they can have a really good offer and a really good headline. But what happens with testing is that you get an old school guy who doesn't want to do the numbers, and, and somebody else comes in and, and actually says, did you try testing against that headline or that offer? And he says, no, I'd go by my gut. Those tests usually prove, prove that guy wrong at, at, at some point. So it all adds tire out. Um, so you can't, you, you, you can never rely on a single ad. So you've got to get hit to the stuff. Behavioral psychology and uh, math. Stuff wears out faster because of online. And in online, not always, but a lot of times. I mean. You know, that's a, that's a major problem I ran into with free, uh, as a freelancer, too. When you're running an ad, you will you will get tired of it before the math Absolutely. tires out. So you got to be aware. Let the math tell you when it's time to, to change the ad or, or do something. Don't don't try to circumvent the natural life cycle of. of an we ad. had you remember my go by the inch show. We had go by the inch on for eight and a half years, and after six months, almost every week, I had a conversation with Len, where he's calling up. We got to do a new show. So why do we got to do a new show? Well, the, num the numbers are the same. Then why do we have new? Everybody's seen it. I said, no, if you would quit getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning to watch your own damn show, you would, not, you would not think everybody's seen it, you know. And we ran that show for eight and a half years without a single change in it and, and still making money to the, to the bitter end. We have seven minutes. Last question. Uh, you kind of went there with some authors, but people often ask, and so it's a good question. Who, two, three, four major influencers of how you approach selling and copy that people might want to Amazon, Google, go hunt for in a used bookstore, you know, that, that sort of thing. Yeah, I was really lucky, and I happened to live in Los Angeles at a time when the New York agencies opened up direct response branches in Los Angeles. It was a golden age back in the early days. They're all out of business now. But I was the guy that would sneak in the back door because their staff didn't understand direct response and they didn't want the clients to see me because I, I am who I am. So they sneak me in and I'd, I'd do that writing. But I, living down there at that time was Jay Abraham and I met him because he pissed me off and I went to his office to hit him. 
uh, he, he, had, he had run an ad in the Los Angeles Times looking for uh, direct response copywriters, and I sent one. He sent me back a form letter saying, you, you really need to read Claude Hopkins if you're going to get into this biz. And I had already devoured everything of that. So I went, I was really ticked off that he hadn't even looked at my letter or my stuff. We wound up being great friends, and, and I were, uh, uh, traded hanging around his office for doing work for him. So I worked for free, but my payment was being able to hang out there. So I got to watch him do consultations. And that was the first time I saw, this is a long time ago when $2,000 meant something. People paid $2,000 an hour to fly into Los Angeles and go and sit in his office while he, while he would sometimes exercise and, and just pontificate. And it was worth it at the time because there was no other source for that stuff. At, at Jay's uh, divorce party, I met Gary Halbert. Uh, Gary Halbert, when I met him, was the most uh, arrogant, dismissive uh, bastard I'd ever met in my life, and I liked him immediately. <laughs> and we became fast friends. I, I started out, he was a mentor, and then we worked together, and we were lifelong friends until he died a couple of years ago. And uh, through Jay, I met John Finn. I don't know how much you, you knew John Finn. I knew John a little. He, he was the only agent for direct response freelance copywriters in the world. He, he just invented it. He said, somebody needs to be an agent. So I met him, and he started hooking me up with people. And I started ghostwriting for a couple of writers who became very, very famous. One is Jim Rutz, who is a <clears throat> very interesting guy. But the thing about Jim is that he taught me discipline. He, he made me... I wrote a perfect piece. I, I ghost wrote for him, essentially. I wrote the, <clears throat> he, he got the deal, and he, he, we brainstormed, but I did all the grunt work of writing the thing. And he made me do 16 versions of an ad that was almost there. So it wasn't, it, it was good enough, but it wasn't perfect. And he needed it to be perfect because he was going up against other A-list writers. In that game with A-list writers that the uh, places like Boardroom and Rodale and Agora, because they have such good writers, you need to be a little more perfect than the average entrepreneur because you're going to win by 0.01%, and that will become the control, and you can lose by 0.01%, and a near-perfect letter can become uh, you know, trash meat uh, just because it got beat by, by a... That's why those are the guys you really want to pay attention to. You want to be buying from Rodale. You want to be buying from Boardroom. Those are the best You writers. want to be buying from Agora because they the they're, they're getting the top... The, the top, top talent. Oh, I'd say, you know, at that time, there were 15 direct response writers worthy of writing for, for those guys in the world. There's probably a few more now, but it always seems to settle down to just a handful that figure it out and are willing to do that. But you don't need to be A-list. You need to understand what they're doing, but you don't need to approach that. But it's always good to know what the best in the biz are doing. You've been listening to one of our gold members only podcasts. Make sure you upgrade and become a diamond member and get access to the diamond members only podcast as well. On top of that, you'll also get access to the whole enchilada with all dance courses and so much more. So make sure you upgrade to diamond now by going to diamondupgrade.com.